Uh, is Australia a multicultural society? Well, I think as I look around today, I'd say we've got a bit of a, a reflection of multiculturalism. But I think you would get a range of answers depending who you asked and in what part of Australia you asked it. Now, personally, uh, we're in the inner west of Sydney. Uh, I can see some amazing positive expressions of uh, a, a genuine celebration of multiculturalism and cohesion despite differences. Uh, but there are also, as we look around at Australia and we read the news, there are far too many ugly examples of personal, institutional racism, discrimination, uh, where differences between people are an excuse for fear and mistrust and even hatred. Um, Scott Morrison, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, was asked that question at the Australian Press Club last year in 2021. Uh, and as he answered it, uh, he said he recognised that Australia faced significant challenges uh, and he highlighted uh, especially to do with Indigenous Australians. But then he said that Australia was the most successful multicultural immigration country on the planet. And he went on to identify the noble spirit of Australians who recognised the great benefits of a cohesion uh, of Australians and who are committed to working on the challenges. Now, if we're going to be truly multicultural, uh, we need to learn to be tolerant. Uh, we need to learn to bear with differences. Now, tolerance, gee, that's an interesting word, isn't it? Uh, for many Australians, tolerance means uh, agreeing that everybody is right. Uh, all religions, all points of view, they're true and they're valid, uh, and you're not allowed to disagree. You're not allowed to try and convince someone that they're wrong and you're right. Uh, and if you disagree, then you're labelled as intolerant and, ironically, are shown intolerance. <laughs> and so people who hold that view of tolerance will say things like, it's okay for you to believe what you want to believe. I've got my beliefs. We're both right. Everything's good. But that's just nonsense. You don't have to ask too many questions of someone of another religion to realise that religions, many religions, are directly contradictory. One has to be wrong if one's going to be right. Or maybe they're both wrong, but it's just not possible for both positions to be right. So tolerance is not about accepting that everyone is right. Instead, here's a good definition of tolerance that I like. It's from Paul Copen in his book, True for You, But Not for Me. And he says, contrary to popular definitions, true tolerance means putting up with error, not being accepting of all views. You see, because it's real... Uh, it is because real differences exist between people that tolerance becomes necessary and virtuous. If there's no differences, if we're all the same or it doesn't really matter what a difference is, then there's no reason for tolerance, is there? You see, tolerance means you, it's okay to... You, you can disagree with someone. It's okay to think that they're wrong and you're right. In fact, tolerance allows you to try and convince the other person. You care enough about them that you want them to be right as well. You can disagree strongly. 
but you still respect the person, you respect the right of that person to hold that opinion. Now, now that's tolerance. Tolerance is listening to your Muslim neighbour as they explain Islam to you and you explain Christianity to them and still getting on. Tolerance is maintaining your friendship with your non-Christian workmate, even though their lifestyle and their behaviour is just the complete opposite of yours. And you try to show by word and action that Jesus makes life better. Tolerance is inviting your friend and his partner over for dinner, listening to their point of view and then trying to explain yours. Explaining that you used to think one thing, but now you know the truth. Once you were wrong, but now you're right and you want them to do the same. Now that's the situation Paul's in here in Jerusalem. He was wrong. He was wrong about how sinful people can approach a holy God, about how you can please him. He thought it was about law-keeping, temple, sacrifice, food laws, circumcision, Sabbath. And that meant he was wrong about Gentiles and their standing before God. But most important, he was wrong about Jesus. And as he comes to Jerusalem... The Jews who are there, who hear him speak, they disagree with him. They think what Paul used to think, and so there's a riot. Chapter 28 of, uh, sorry, verse 28 of chapter 21, they accuse him of disrespecting their culture. They think he's teaching Jews to stop obeying the Jewish law. They think he's desecrating the temple, that he's inviting unclean Gentiles in. That's what they think, and so they react violently. They throw him out of the temple. And then into chapter 22, Paul stands up and declares that he was wrong and that they need to change. He used to think what they thought. In fact, he's at the extreme end of their position. That's verse 3. But then something happened that turned him around and pointed him in the other direction. And now his life is dedicated to convincing others as well that they are wrong and that they need to imitate him. He's turning other people around and pointing them to Jesus. Now, according to lots of people today, that's intolerance. But in a way, it's the ultimate action of respect for your audience, isn't it? Of love, of tolerance. He's willing to risk his life so that they hear the matter, a message that's a matter of life and death. If he didn't care, he wouldn't bother. He'd just say, oh, we're all the same. All religions will get there. He'd just keep quiet because his news didn't matter enough to start an argument. Do you care enough about your neighbours your workmates, friends, teammates, family who don't know Jesus to disagree with them, to risk the awkward conversation. Well, let's backtrack a bit. Let's see how Paul got to this point. What is it that's so important? Paul's willing to risk his life. Well, back in verse 17 of chapter 21, Paul and his Gentile brothers, they've travelled through Europe and Asia. They arrive in Jerusalem and they've got the collection 
uh, for the Jewish Christian brothers. Uh, Paul meets up with them in verse 17. When he arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Jews and non-Jews, now brothers in Christ. And they're all rejoicing uh, at how God has brought people from all over to be part of his family through faith in Jesus. But after the rejoicing, they state the problem. Second half of verse 20. There are thousands of Jewish brothers who are now Christians. And they're still good Jews. They're still doing all the things that show their Jewish culture. They go to temple. They keep the food laws. They circumcise their kids. They keep the festivals. They keep the Sabbath. They offer sacrifices. And they've heard, verse 21, that Paul is telling Jews around the world to stop being Jewish. Now, that's not true at all. Paul's message is, whether you eat certain foods or celebrate certain days, it doesn't matter at all. He's not telling Jews not to be Jewish. He's just saying that these things don't determine your access to God. The access to God is simply trusting Jesus, whoever you are. Do those things, don't do them. It doesn't make a difference. Paul himself, he's willing to be a Jew to Jews and a Gentile to Gentiles. He's willing to wash his hands and not eat pork when he's in Jerusalem or to eat a bacon and cream tortellini when he's in Corinth. Because external things don't matter. And so, verse 26, to reassure the Jewish Christians, he goes along with their plan to offer a sacrifice to make a vow at the temple. He's being a Jew for the sake of the Jews. He arrives at the temple. This is where the trouble begins. Verse 27, he meets some of his old enemies, Jews from Asia, it says. I think it's probably from Ephesus. Uh, Paul got to know them uh, a few years earlier when he was there. They're no friendlier now. They're intolerant towards Paul as well as towards Gentiles. Verse 27, they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed Paul had brought him into the temple area. The ironic thing is that Paul is in the temple for a purification vow and yet he's accused of polluting the temple because that was one thing that would bring a swift sentence of death uh, was to be a Gentile in the temple. Uh, there are, were signs on the walls written in Greek that said no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Now there's a welcoming sign, isn't it? <laughs> One of the recommendations from the Reach Australia consult really was for us to think about our signage. 
how to make our signage clearer and more welcoming. This is not an example of that, is it? Now that's intolerance. That's a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Verse 30, there's a riot. They drag Paul out of the temple. Now the really sad thing is, it should have been a day for celebration, not riot. Because what is happening is something the Old Testament scriptures said would happen. Something that God had planned from the beginning. Uh, Isaiah 66, it's a passage where God says to Israel, look forward, look forward to the time when I'm going to gather all the nations and tongues and they will come to Jerusalem and see my glory. Isaiah 66 verse 19, I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, to the Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and to Greece, where Paul's just come from, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. Now, if you're a Jew, what does Isaiah say you should be expecting and and, and looking forward to? A time when the glory of God will be seen by the nations, not just the Jews. God will set a sign among the nations, verse 19, to call them in. Isaiah says you should be expecting people like the Lydians. They used to be called the Lydians, but a bit later on they became called the Ephesians. And that they would come pouring into Jerusalem to pay tribute at the temple and that they would be counted among the people of God. Now you'd think that would be something to celebrate when it happened, wouldn't you? A multicultural festival where everyone are brothers and sisters worshipping God. The more the merrier, you would think. Now that's exactly what Paul's been working on. He's been out to the nations, he's been telling them about the glory of God And he set a sign among them. The great sign that's gone out to the world is the sign of the cross of Jesus that Paul preaches. His death, his resurrection, his victory. And now Paul's back in Jerusalem and he's brought these Gentiles with him and they've even brought a tribute, just like Isaiah said, money that he's been collecting for the famine. And so everything Isaiah said is happening Jews are pouring into Jerusalem to pay tribute to the God of Israel, which you'd think would be a cause to celebrate. But instead, these intolerant, blind Jews can't see things God's way at all. They just see someone who upsets their system. Now, do you realise God wants those same things for this church? God wants all sorts of people here in his family. God wants people who look differently to us, who speak differently, who dress differently. God wants people who are inconvenient and time-consuming, difficult to get along with, hard to have a conversation with. God wants people who are awkward and noisy. 
who don't enjoy the same things we do. God wants all people everywhere to worship him. You see, the greater the diversity, the greater the glory that goes to Jesus. Because great diversity reflects that Jesus is the Lord of every nation. Great diversity looks forward to that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. And whenever we're tempted to think that maybe church would just be a little bit easier, a little bit quieter, a little bit calmer, a little bit easier to handle if things just stayed the same, if we didn't get any bigger, if people walking past church didn't come in, every time we think that, then our view of the world, our view of God's plans are just as blinkered as these Jews who get angry at Paul. We're doing okay as a church. We've got enough people to to do the jobs and fill the rosters. We've got enough money to pay our bills each year. But look around. There are lots of empty spaces. Look a little further out. There are maybe 150 people who come to our church on a Sunday. But in a five-kilometre radius around us, From Enfield to Petersham, there are 129,000 people. From Enfield to Petersham, 129,000. Most of them are not Christian. Most of them don't even know anyone who is living before them as a Christian. They may know a Christian, but perhaps they don't know that he or she is a Christian. Are we comfortable with that number? Are we better than the Jews? They should have been throwing a party with Paul as he brought the Gentiles in, but instead they want to tear him apart. And Paul barely escapes. Thanks to the Roman soldiers, verse 35, he makes it out alive. He gets the opportunity to stand in front of the crowd and give his defence speech. Uh, And that's what Nikki read for us, chapter 22. It's a speech that focused on a meeting that changed everything. Paul's meeting with Jesus. A meeting that turned his world upside down. Look at what Paul used to be, verse 3. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Isn't that an amazing statement? He's almost been ripped apart by these zealous Jews. And he says, that was me. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. You only tried to kill me. I succeeded in killing Christians. Arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. But, but then something happened, or rather someone And he realised how wrong he was. Verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Paul thought Jesus was dead in the ground. 
Paul thought that Christians were wrong. Paul thought that Jesus was pleased whenever he arrested a Christian. But in that one meeting with Jesus, Paul discovered that all of those ideas were upside down. Jesus was really alive. He really was God's Messiah. The Christians weren't wrong, they were right. Paul's efforts at arresting Christians was harming Jesus himself and fighting against God's purposes. God wasn't pleased with him. He was displeased with him. And so Paul immediately transferred his alliance. He changed sides from persecuting Jesus to serving him. Verse 10, what shall I do, Lord? That is a fairly bold decision to make, isn't it? Admitting that you used to be wrong, that you used to think one thing, you were running solidly in the other direction, but now you've seen that you were wrong. Is that something you need to do? God is just as willing, just as ready, just as keen to forgive you as he was Saul or Paul. Paul was leading the race running in the wrong direction, but he stopped and he turned around and he headed back. And so he ends up in Damascus at the house of Ananias, a Jewish Christian, where he's given orders from his new commanding officer, his new rules of engagement. Verse 14. Then he said, The God of our fathers, uh, Ananias said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you've seen and heard. Now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised, wash your sins away, calling on his name. Paul, chosen by God himself to be a witness. Uh, Then sometime later, Paul gets those orders clarified by Jesus himself. And this is the only account we we get of this uh, intriguing uh, meeting. When I returned to Jerusalem, verse 17, I was praying at the temple. I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Paul finds that difficult to believe. He thought his past reputation would have earned him a hearing. But Lord, these men know that I went from uh, from one synagogue to another to imprison and then beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who were uh, killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, the Jews have been listening to him up to this point, but it's as he says those last words. God wants Paul to go to the Gentiles. Well, that's the final straw. They want to keep God for themselves. They want to remain a special people. They're not interested in any sort of multiculturalism or any sort of tolerance. But that was never God's intention. His plan was always that Jesus would be revealed as the worldwide king to whom people from every nation and language would bow. It was bad news for those Jews, but isn't it great news for us that we can be part of God's people too? 
receive his promises and his gifts. We too can receive his fatherhood and his forgiveness and his inheritance. We too can receive peace and hope and love and purpose. The reality is Jesus is right and every other way is wrong. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That is not intolerance. There's nothing about that message that we need to be apologetic about or ashamed of. We show love and tolerance for people we meet by speaking that truth to them in love. Always being willing to give an account of the hope that's in us. In Paul's letter to uh, the Colossians a couple of years later under house arrest, uh, he wrote these words. Firstly, talking about himself, pray for us that God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And then some words for the Colossians. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Seasoned with salt, there's all sorts of ideas about what that might be. Uh, Always full of grace is interesting. Don't start an argument. Don't make an enemy. You want to make a friend. Uh, Disagree, but do it graciously. The seasoned with salt, I think it's about salt makes a difference. Um, make your conversation worthwhile. I talk about superficial conversation or I talk about conversation that gets one step deeper, one, one step below that superficial. How people feel. What do they get excited about? What are they sad about? Uh, conversation that's seasoned with salt so that you may proclaim Christ clearly. That, that's what tolerance looks like, I think. May God give us the courage and the opportunities to do that so that his kingdom, his worldwide kingdom, might be built up and that Jesus' name might be honoured. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, build your kingdom, build it in Ashfield, uh, build it in the suburbs around us. Lord, if that's uh, through building our church, uh, we would rejoice in that. We want people from every nation, every language, every type of person to come to know the Lord Jesus and to bow the knee before him. We pray that you would give us the privilege of playing a part in that process uh, so that Jesus will be honoured. Amen.